Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It is Wednesday the 22nd of July. I'm Tom Tilley. My name's Jamila Rizvi and today we are joined by Australia's first and only female Prime Minister, Julia Gillard. So there's no need to really take this on because it's only a transitory phase. Um, You know, I was kind of dead set wrong about that. You'll find out what she was dead set wrong about in just a moment. First, let's get into the big news of the day. After yesterday's much-welcomed announcement that JobKeeper and JobSeeker will be extended beyond September, we now know what it will actually look like. Here's the PM. The payment for JobKeeper uh, will be reduced to $1,200 per fortnight and there will be a lower payment for those working less than 20 hours a week of $750 at the changeover period uh, towards the end of September. So that's JobKeeper. The unemployment payment, JobSeeker, will fall from $1,100 to $815 a fortnight. And unlike JobKeeper, it will cut out at the end of 2020 rather than pushing through to March 2021. People on JobSeeker will also be required to apply for at least four jobs a month and they'll be penalised if they don't accept the job that's offered to them. Treasurer Josh Frydenberg reckons that most workers will only need to rely on the payments for a little while longer as the economy recovers. Treasury expects that the number of JobKeeper recipients will reduce substantially, with around 1.4 million people remaining eligible in the December quarter, 2020, and 1 million in the March quarter. Sounding hopeful there, the Treasurer will find out where the economy's at when they give a budget update tomorrow. You know, I'm really interested in that new requirement on a job seeker that you have to apply for at least four jobs a month. Part of it just seems kind of fruitless. I read a stat yesterday that there are 12 people applying for every single open job ad at the moment, Tom. A Melbourne teenager who worked in hotel quarantine says she knew the virus would spread from quarantine travellers. Shayla Shakshi told the ABC 7.30 program that guards weren't taking COVID-19 seriously. Guards were, you know, hitting each other, they were hugging each other, they were touching each other. They weren't actually serious about how serious this COVID is. It's just they were taking it as a joke, like, oh, it's just some virus that anyone can get, you know, we're not going to get it. Shayla says she was recruited to work at the Stanford Plaza via WhatsApp and told to bring her own PPE gear after her first shift was over. So they're like, okay, guys, bring your own um, mask from tomorrow, bring your own gloves, your own sanitizer because we might run out because we have so many guards on site, this and that. That was the first shift I did, first and last shift. I just didn't want to go back there. Oh, it's so hard to hear how hopeless that hotel quarantine was. I can't imagine what it's like for you. Jamila, you're just a few suburbs away from that hotel in full lockdown now. Yeah, I'm not so much frustrated as furious when I hear stories like that. We've been locked down for around two weeks now, I think, which I know... Chief Health Officer Brett Sutton says is the really crucial point because this disease does tend to show up about two weeks later. We're seeing the numbers stabilise, but, you know, they're stabilising around the 350 mark, so still feels pretty bleak. Charges have been laid against DreamWorld's parent company four years after the Thunder River Rapids ride tragedy killed four people. Prosecutors claim Ardent Leisure's failure to properly maintain equipment or train and supervise staff led to their deaths. One of the ride operators had only been trained that morning. Each of three charges carries a maximum of $1.5 million penalty, but no individuals will be charged, which means that nobody is facing jail time. 
Yeah, the mother of two of the victims, Kim Dorset, has told Seven that it won't bring them back. It doesn't give me closure at all. Um, it's just the end to a legal process. And the days of browsing gossip mags at the hairdresser or the airport could soon be over, um, with eight more uh, very well-known Aussie magazines axed, including Harper's Bazaar, Men's Health and Elle. Bauer Media initially suspended those titles back in May before killing them off entirely. It blamed a massive fall in advertising revenue, but reader numbers had already been falling for years because of people moving to social media for their gossip. Tom, I know that the last time I read a magazine was... I mean, I don't know the last time I read a magazine. (laughs) Yeah. I guess for our generation, it, it is all on social media and, and now we're seeing the result of that, which is the magazine uh, industry completely decimated. Yeah, I do feel kind of nostalgic though. I mean, I was one of those teenage girls who grew up with Dolly and Girlfriend and titles like that and I used to read them religiously. Yeah, and it's bad for, for media jobs as well, this whole story, because um, the magazine cuts come after you know massive job losses at News Corp, the ABC... BuzzFeed, 10 Daily, so a very tough time for the media in general. I will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. I will not. And the government will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. When Prime Minister Julie Gillard stood up in Parliament and gave that infamous speech back in 2012, she had no idea it would become the defining moment of her political career. The speech went viral around the world, with at least six million people watching it on YouTube alone. Because if he wants to know what misogyny looks like in modern Australia, he doesn't need a motion in the House of Representatives. He needs a mirror. That's what he needs. That moment transformed Julia Gillard into a feminist superhero. Yeah, at that time she was Australia's first and so far only female Prime Minister. She came to power quite controversially after axing Kevin Rudd in 2010. Her prime ministership was then ended in a spectacular moment of revenge uh, when Kevin Rudd came back to power in 2013. A bit of a switcheroo that we've done a few times since. It was a brutal period in Australian politics. Gillard faced a minority parliament, internal Labor Party division and an aggressive but highly effective opposition leader in Tony Abbott. On the day she lost the top job, this is what Gillard said about the really gross sexism that she'd faced as Prime Minister. It doesn't explain everything. It doesn't explain nothing. It explains some things. And it is for the nation to think in a sophisticated way about those shades of grey. What I am absolutely confident of is it will be easier for the next woman and the woman after that and the woman after that. And I'm proud of that. So that was a very powerful moment. And since then, Julia Gillard's been very busy post-politics. Unlike some of her other post-prime ministerial contemporaries, she doesn't commentate on day-to-day Aussie politics. She works as the chair at Beyond Blue, the Global Partnership for Education, where she works alongside Rihanna. Um, Pretty epic. Um, She's also the chair of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. Not bad, right? A bit better than sniping from the sidelines like some of the others. Gillard released her new book, Women in Leadership, which was co-written with former Nigerian finance minister Ngozi Okonjo-Iwila earlier this month. She joins us today to talk about what makes female leadership different from men, why it's still so rare, and how ultra-macho leadership styles are letting the world down during this pandemic. And Jamila, you actually have a connection with Julie Gillard. 
you were colleagues, essentially. <laughs> you were an advisor. What? She was the prime minister. But, you know, you were colleagues. Yeah, exactly. And I was like a baby advisor. Like I was, you know, getting the coffees and getting the photocopying done. But, yeah, we were indeed, Tom, we were colleagues. All right. I hope you can bring that up with her. Let's do it. Julie Gillard, thanks for joining us on The Briefing. Thank you. Great to be with you. Now, I want to take you back to that very strange period of almost two weeks in 2010 when we essentially had a tie in the Australian election and you were negotiating with the crossbench to be able to form government. And you may not remember this particular act of empathy, but I recall standing outside the Prime Minister's office waiting for a friend who worked for you and I had my head in my hands, worried that my house full of staffers were about to be unable to pay their rent. And you came <laughs> over and you tapped me on the shoulder and you said, are you all right? And I should have said something rousing and instead I said, no, I'm really worried we're going to lose, which wasn't ideal. And uh, you said, oh, yeah, me too. I'm worried about that too. And you walked off. And I remember reflecting on so many occasions on the kindness of that moment, that it was a life-changing, nation-changing moment for you and you took the time to check on a 24-year-old who was sooking about a rent. And I wanted to ask whether you thought that in a world where 90% of countries and 90% of ASX 200 companies are run by men, are we lacking that kind of empathy from our leaders? I do think that in the age in which we live, people are increasingly looking for leadership which is both strong and empathetic. And I think we're seeing that reflected by the fact that there's so much discussion now of how women are leading during this period of the pandemic and that many of the women who are leading are making sure that their nations stay as safe as possible. I am hoping that over the medium term, we come out of this with a new respect for leadership that can do both. You've been making some interesting points about the sort of macho leaders like Donald Trump or um, Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil or Boris Johnson. Those men with that kind of um, traditional macho leadership style are really failing in the current pandemic. What What is it about the leadership style of those leaders and others like them that you, that you feel is so unsuited for these times? Basically, I just think you can't bluster in the face of a virus. You know, there might be many political issues that you can wangle your way through, not worrying whether what you're saying is factual or evidence-based or any expert is going to agree with you. Um, indeed, during the Brexit campaign in the UK, there was a moment when, you know, it was politically kind of said, well, look, people are sick of looking, listening to experts anyway. What are they know. And this is a time in which we've come to understand ever so clearly that expertise matters, competence matters, listening to good advice matters, and not pretending that you know it all. What do you mean by blustering through? And, and do you think that is more typically a male characteristic? I'm thinking of here of things like Donald Trump's claims about how many people went to his inauguration. You know, you can work that out. There are photographs, all the rest of it, which absolutely show how many people were there and it wasn't the grand number that he claimed. Now, he can bluster his way through that and people ultimately get sick of talking about it and move on. But you can't bring that style 
to something like a virus where you just pretend, oh, it's just a little bit of a cold or a drug's going to work when the evidence shows that drug isn't going to work. So bringing those same tendencies hasn't seen his nation through during this time. Now, what's all of that got to do with gender? Well, in the book, we do talk about, you know, socialisation. We do talk about uh, male and female leadership styles, but we talk particularly about how people see men and women as leaders and the fact that gender stereotypes whisper in all of our brains. And I think that there is evidence to show that we are less forgiving of errors in female leaders. So we don't uh, let them do quite the degree of bluster that men can get away with. Julia, in the book, which you've co-authored with your friend Ngozi, you've interviewed some incredible female leaders, Jacinda Ardern, Hillary Clinton, Theresa May and, and others. Moving on from that COVID discussion, we've obviously seen New Zealand do incredibly well. What do you think about Jacinda Ardern's leadership style that is working? And do you think she'd survive in Australian politics? Well, in the interview for the book, Jacinda herself uh, was sceptical that she would survive in Australian <laughs> politics. And I think she's the one who would be able to judge best. Uh, she said that she looked at my experiences and she described them as brutal. And, you know, she doubts whether she could have um, adapted to or would have wanted even to put herself forward for politics in an environment like ours. Her leadership is a mix of her own personality traits and what she wants to bring to the fore and the environment that she's in. She's someone who's deliberately wanted to foreground kindness and empathy. And if she couldn't lead in that way, she didn't want to lead at all. She was prepared to say, look, either this is going to work or it's not. But if it's not going to work, then I'm not going to change my style to prosper in politics. But she also points to the special things about New Zealand. You know, she is the third woman to lead New Zealand. There are only two nations on earth that have had three women leaders. The other one is Iceland. And she thinks that makes a difference. She thinks the more benign media environment makes the difference too. And it's given her, I think, more space to be herself. And that's a wonderful thing to watch. Yeah, when you look back at, at your time as Prime Minister, you tried to keep gender out of it because it seemed like you didn't want that to be the focus. You wanted to fight on policy. But looking back and, and maybe having sort of seen the, the trajectory of Jacinta Ardern or other leaders you've spoken to as part of this book, would you have played those elements of your personality and your leadership style differently if you had your time again? Interestingly, all of the leaders we talk to, even Jacinda, uh, are conscious that female leaders do end up on a bit of a tightrope. You know, if you come on too strong, people don't like that. Uh, and we cite research in the book about how people do react against, you know, tough women leaders. They conclude that they're not likeable and, you know, very much mark them down. 
Yet on the other side, if you're too soft, then people will think, gee, you haven't got the spine, you haven't got the backbone, you haven't got what it takes. I do muse now as to whether I should have pointed out gendered treatment earlier. And look, I don't know whether it would make a difference or would have made a difference. But when I first became Prime Minister, I thought, you know what, this kind of reaction to me being the first woman will wash its way out of the system and the treatment of me will end up being more normal over time. So there's no need to really take this on because it's only a transitory phase. Um, You know, I was kind of dead set wrong about that. Uh, So knowing (laughs) as I do now that I was dead set wrong about that, I do wonder (laughs) what would have happened if I'd called it out earlier and had provoked some of the conversations we needed to have uh, before it got quite as crazy as it did. Julie Gillard, how do you want men to change? What what would you like men to understand that maybe they don't potentially around um, our unconscious biases, our, our own behaviours that we may not realise impact women the way that they do? What are the things you'd like to sort of make men aware of and, and see them do differently? So we give some really practical tips like research shows that if you've got five people meeting to discuss a problem, women will only get a fair share of the talking time if four out of the five are women. If there's more than one man in that group, then the men will take a disproportionate amount of the time available. Well, if men know that, they can stop that. They can talk a little less. They can draw women into the conversation, say, look, we haven't heard from Jamila yet, what she got to say. They can Mm -hmm. adopt consensual uh, decision-making styles because the research also shows that women get a fair share of the talking time if the group has to reach a decision by consensus. Julia, I really want to just sit here and hear you lecture Tom a little bit more. (laughs) I'm I'm wondering how much time you've got on your hands. Um, I could also go and get my partner and my son if we wanted to broaden the community of male listeners. Uh, to these excellent points. But I do want to ask a more serious question, which is around uh, the impact the pandemic is having in Australia when it comes to the economy. We know that more women are losing their jobs and a lot of those women are then no longer looking for work anymore. So they're no longer showing up in the unemployment figures because they're not seeking to participate in work. Do you think COVID has the prospect of setting back progress for gender equality? I think it does have that potential. I think that from the economic changes that you're talking about, this is a recession where the job losses are disproportionately women's jobs. And I also think that this has the potential to disproportionately impact on women because many organisations may well conclude to themselves, gee, all that work we were doing on diversity, you know, that was kind of good, but it's not made for times like these. You know, it's a luxury and we'll get back to that work sometime in the future, but we're not going to do it now. Having said that, I think if we can get the drive for gender equality right at this time, there are some huge new prospects for change too. The fact is we are doing things now virtually that people said couldn't be done virtually. So I think how good or how bad this is, whether we maximise the positive or we're swept away by the negative, is in some senses still to play for as we come through this period, which is why it's really important to be having these conversations now. 
And Julia Gillard, just lastly, you can implore people to sort of push for gender equality because it's the right thing to do to appeal to their, their sense of morality. But if female leadership styles have really important values to offer, I imagine having more women in leadership is going to make the world a better place. Is that your view? And do you think that's a good way to try and change people's minds to focus on those tangible benefits of more female leadership rather than trying to, you know, draw on people's sense of fairness and morality? For me, the moral argument matters and we should keep restating it. You know, every human being has the uh, right to realise their full potential and not to hit artificial barriers because of gender or indeed any other characteristic, uh, you know, uh, race, uh, their status as a potentially a person with a disability, uh, their sexuality, their gender identity. None of these things should lead to people being um artificially held back. So the moral argument is important. But I think that there are a series of practical arguments too. I mean, I fundamentally believe that merit is equally distributed between the sexes. And so if we look at our world and we aren't seeing around half men, half female leaders, that must mean that there are women of merit who didn't get to come through. And why in this, you know, fractious, contested age, wouldn't we want the best people leading us? I am very strongly convinced that a gender equal world will be better for everyone, for women and for men, because it will give people more choices, more abilities to, you know, chart their own course rather than feeling like some predetermined path or set of reactions is the way that they have to be. Julia Gillard, thank you so much for being with us here on The Briefing. We've really enjoyed your company. Thank you. Great to be with you. That was Julia Gillard, the former Prime Minister, talking about her new book, Women in Leadership. And if that interview was way too short for you, definitely was for me, then we'll post a special weekend episode with a full unedited version of that conversation and it will be ready for you bright and early Saturday morning. All right, that's it for today. Tomorrow on The Briefing, we take a deep dive, uh, pun intended, into (laughs) shark attacks. Uh, Why has there been a spate of them this year? Speak to you tomorrow. A Podcast One production.